fortunate here in the AI and industry podcast and on techemergence.com at large to cater to a very particular audience. Uh, we know how to satisfy them. That is, an audience interested in the real ROI of artificial intelligence today and the reasonably near-term or mid-term implications of AI on industries and businesses tomorrow. Uh, not on the hype, not on who raised the most money, but on who's developing technologies that are going to tangibly impact what businesses win and lose in the market. And when we talk to executives and we talk to researchers about what needs to happen in the machine learning world for more and more businesses to glean value from machine learning, whether it's in finance, healthcare, marketing, whatever, uh, there's three major themes that we hear time and time again. The first of which is companies need to collect more data uh, and be able to streamline and use that data and store that information in, in ways that are going to be useful to train models. Second, computing power needs to become more accessible and the hardware inherent there might need to improve in order to make it more accessible to more businesses. And third, paradoxically enough, uh, algorithms and AI methods need to be developed to make it so that tangible, positive business results can be gleaned without an almost infinite stream of data. So how do businesses who aren't under a massive deluge of data in a particular domain, whether it's you know e-commerce, marketing, finance, what have you, still glean tangible benefit from machine learning, still develop smart applications, again, without unlimited computing power and unlimited data? Uh, there's a number of companies aiming to sort of bridge that gap between frozen logic on one side, basic if-then scenarios and if-then rules, and massive deep neural nets and massive piles of data on the other side. What is the middle ground? We interview Evan Prodromu this week, who's founder of Fuzzy.ai. Uh, they're a company that we got to meet during my big 10-day trip up in Montreal. I'll be doing a Huffington Post piece on that. It might be published at the time that this podcast goes live. And we uh, we met Fuzzy.ai up in Montreal. And this is a company that focuses on bridging the gap between deep neural networks and the requirement for massive amounts of data uh, and logic. How do we get as much out of machine learning as possible without having a near unlimited amount of data? We talk about various applications of that, everything from pricing to business intelligence and beyond, and sort of how that gap is being bridged and what might need to happen in the near term for more and more companies who are maybe more mid-sized or even smaller businesses to have access to and be able to leverage AI in a powerful way. This sort of sheds a curious light on the general dynamics of where AI might sort of fit its niche and fit its role in the business world, and hopefully we'll give some of our our business listeners a better understanding of the dynamics at play that are making these technologies accessible and how that might apply to your own industry. So without further ado, this is Evan with Fuzzy.ai here on AI and Industry. So Evan, uh, first and foremost, I wanted to talk about a use case that we were just talking about off microphone with regards to dynamic pricing. Uh, I can imagine one approach here would be you know, make a million sales of a product and figure out what elements of the customer and what facets sort of will generate the most revenue per purchase or most profit per purchase just based on volume. There's probably ways to fit logic into the mix on the front end here. How would an example like this work with the approach that, that sort of we're leaning into today? Yeah, thanks, Dan. It's a, uh, it's actually, the example you gave was really interesting. You know, you take a million transactions and you use that with a machine learning algorithm to derive what's the best you know, possible price for your customers. You have a couple of problems with that. First of all, not all of us have a million transaction records lying around, right? Yeah, that's that's, a a, uh, that's, oh, yeah. that's the problem, it, yeah, for sure. It, it, it really is the problem, right? And even if you do have millions of transaction records available, they may not be applicable for a particular product. 
And you do have to have a lot of data in order to get intelligent behavior out of those machine learning systems. So that's probably the first thing that, that's really kind of a, a problem there. The second is that in order to do that, you have to have some pretty widely varying prices, probably varying uh, randomly, <laughs> in order to get some kind of you know a good statistical coverage of your possible pricing space. Um, the last thing is what you're probably going to discover is really amazing insights like customers prefer lower prices, right? Or um, uh, you know customers who uh, have been regular users of your service are more likely to be willing to pay full price. Yeah, these yeah. are things that everyone who does e-commerce already knows. These are business best practices. This is as old as economics, right? And so it is, if we think of that data as a fuel or capital for your intelligence, we're spending a lot of data capital in order to get some pretty basic insights into your systems. What we do with hybrid logic learning systems is we start off with things that we already know. Customers already prefer low prices. We know that, and we can encode that as a rule in a rules language, right? We can encode things like first-time customers you might want to give a big discount to in order to get them to become long-term repeat users, right? Popular products you really don't need to give a big big discount on because they're obviously selling well. Uh, unpopular products, you may want to kind of lower them, lower the price in order to get them moving, right? There are, you can put together a very straightforward rules-based pricing algorithm with, let's say, 10, maybe 20 rules that can be very simple and really reflect basic business information. And, and just to um, clarify this, Evan, if we can just dive in, I, yeah. I want to make sure I'm painting a mental image for the audience uh, in, this, in yeah. this audio program here. Um, so this is good to tee up. I take it just as one clarifying point, this 10 or 20 rules could be used across an entire e-commerce site or would this be for a particular yeah. product or a category? I imagine it could apply to a site, right? That rule about popular products, I mean, you, you may not need discounts You'd on things that are selling really well. That, that could just sort of be transferable. Exactly. Exactly. So you can do either having a rule set that works across your whole site, or you might want to have very specific information because you know more about the customer, right? So if we're in the fishing tackle section of your of your site, and you know that your customer already has a certain number of flies and sinkers and, and et cetera, you can actually factor that into your pricing algorithm. Um, but generally, what we do is a single pricing algorithm across an entire site. Got it. Okay. Um, when that happens, so when you've got that set up, you need to set up that rule set ahead of time. Then when a user lands on your site and is looking at one of your product pages, you can in real time do the calculation for what price you should show them for that product, right? And so, you know, if they're looking for a pair of shoes, you can calculate based on how long they've been registered, how well the product's been selling, et cetera, um, time of day, day of month, and come up with a good price for the shoes, like $225 for a pair of shoes. Then there is actually, we're at a moment where we generate a feedback event or a performance metric because either the user buys the shoes, in which case they generate $225 worth of revenue, or they go do something else, leave your site, buy something else, in which case they generate zero dollars worth of revenue for you. Either way, we can take that information 
and use it in order to optimize the decision making, right? So uh, either we made $225, good job, you know, keep making decisions this way, or we made $0, let's try and optimize the system there. And so, you know, it's a very simple mechanism. First, you have your, you build your rules, and then you have inputs that come into those rules, you get an output system, and then you use feedback to out optimize the decision making. If it's yeah, all right, just to touch base. So this is this is great as kind of, you know, backdrop here. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it sounds like what you're talking about yeah. is, you know, and, and this is, of course, requires upfront thought, this requires domain expertise, yeah. but you would orchestrate what you would imagine to be some great best practices, some good mm -hmm. sort of de facto ways of dealing with things. You know, maybe it's like, you know, if you find historically that everybody who shows up on your site at two o'clock in the morning is basically going to buy or leave, um, and, and yep. there's just much less price sensitivity when people are making two in the morning purchases, then, you know, maybe mm -hmm. that's a rule that you can kind of factor in there. And you can tinker with a lot of these by looking at your analytics. Clearly a very robust, very brain heavy process in the front end, but this is something the business people would be very capable of doing if they know their business. Then what it, what it sounds like is, you know, again, instead of maybe creating random variety on all the, the variables, you're sort of determining what you want to be the general rules. And then maybe you get to see, hey, did my two in the morning rule end up holding up well, like I thought it would for U.S. citizens, even on the weekends, right? Maybe on the weekends, people yeah. are priced. So it's like you, you essentially figure out which routes are hitting your objective more than which other routes, and then you get a chance to change the rules. So instead of maybe a little bit more of a black box of, I guess this guy got presented this product, you can say, oh, you know what? It looks like we keep trying to kind of guide people towards this you know, high prices in the nighttime, and, and this may not be something we want to do within the U.S., um, am I picking up what you're putting down here? I want, I want a mental picture for the audience. Are, I'm trying to paint it. You are doing an amazing job of picking up what I'm putting down. That's exactly what happens. Sometimes the changes are small, right? So sometimes we say, like, we come in and we've got an idea that it's around 2 o'clock in the morning, and it turns out to be more of a range from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock, right? So we uh, the optimization process might be taking some of those, like, hard-coded parameters and making them a little softer or we like to call them fuzzier, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Fuzzy yep, yeah, quite literally. Yeah, um, that, that's your shtick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is what we do. Another thing is the relative importance of rules, right? You may think that the most important thing is the age of the customer, but it turns out that it's more about their, you know, annual income than their age, right? So those things might vary based on their location, based on what time of day it is, right? It can't, we can actually set the importance of those rules and shift them slightly higher or lower and come out with different results. Um, so these optimization techniques, they're, they're relatively um, well known. I mean, we've been doing them since the 1500s. They're what makes machine learning work. And the really nice parts about this system, first of all, is that it's super opaque. Right. You can just look at a decision and say, OK, clearly the system was looking at the user's age. And this was the decision that came out. And this is why we have this decision, right? Which, whereas in a machine learning system, that can be lost very deep in a number of layers of a, uh, a neural network. Yep. Um, and so it'd be hard to find, hard to audit where the decisions happen. Got the it. other thing is that it's very robust in terms of making changes 
or adding in more data or removing data, right? Um, so, you know, it may turn out that you factor gender into your decisions, right? And uh, and that may not factor at all, it might not be important. And so the optimization will just optimize out that part of the, the part of the system. Or you may realize that, uh, you know, based on some of your market research, that uh, occupation is really important. And so you want to start factoring occupation in, and that would be something that you could add in. So it's a technique that can add or remove kinds of inputs. It's very transparent for the um, developers, and it means that you can get very fast, very uh, reliable uh, decisions happening in real time. That's at least the the goal for sure. And and clearly, yeah. I mean, I think here's the thing. I don't know who's going to crack the nut. You know, I mean, you, you guys are working on it. There's a lot of other people in other industries working on it. But a nut that seems inevitably to be cracked at some point is yeah. we've got the best of, of all worlds of like, you know, your expert system sort of total if then scenario game definitely has its place, definitely have its weaknesses. The full-blown black box, take an unlimited amount of data and crank it through an unlimited number of layers, definitely does some cool stuff, definitely has its weaknesses as well. And again, I think this finding of a sweet spot, and, and you guys are have your approach and, and are going at it now as well and are sort of trying to feel this out and, and, and are in different domains, it seems like it's trying to find where is equilibrium here? Can we still understand the core premises sort of at work and kind of know, you know, what a decision is and why a decision is, and at the same time be able to, you know, leverage machine learning and and kind of have that actual learning happening in real time, not just routing through simple gates, you know, yes, no, yes, yeah. no. So this is yeah. this is sort of a middle ground, I take it. And I think that, you know, AI as part of uh, business decisions is in its early years. Like we oh, yeah. always we keep saying that, but we're really in the in the beginning of this process. And I think that over the next decade, say, we're going to be finding different kinds of applications that we use different techniques for. Some yeah. things that are just, you know, like image recognition is very tractable with very plain, simple machine learning, right? Just right yep. out of the box. Don't yep. worry about any features. Just like run it right through. Bam. Um, other things like, you know, nuclear power plant control, we want to make sure we have very careful, yeah. auditable, manageable expert systems that never, ever change no matter what, right? And But there is a wide array of, of different applications within there, and different companies are going to find different solutions there, yeah, right? And different yeah. balances between logic and learning. And so I want to touch on one other, so that is great backdrop, and I, I think it'll be very curious, and clearly we're, we're going to be working hard to cover it, you were, you're going to be working yeah. hard to solve it, you know, this yeah. dynamic of finding the middle ground between these polar opposites. Like you said, we're in the early stages. A lot of companies that we talk to, you know, they're just running pilots with a whole bunch of different companies, and some of them right. have really established use cases, but there's a lot of really experimental use cases because, man, we have not found all the clicks. Like you said, we're in the early stages yep. here. But one of the dynamics that I think you just pointed out and, and kind of your initial business insight is predicated on is that there will be a middle ground between unlimited data, unlimited layers, machine learning, and ice cold yes or no expert systems. There is yeah. somewhere in between there to solve a whole wide array of problems. You know, I think one of the things that's really important in that process is that, um, you know, today in 2017, we really think of artificially. Uh, intelligence 
as this kind of moonshot business process, right? That, you know, what you're going to do if you're a bank, you're going to have this kind of, you know, robot teller who's going to do everything for your user, right? Or if you are a, an insurance company, it's going to make all your decisions exactly right and identify exactly the right people, right? We're going to have, um, we've got this idea that AI is this like one huge thing that's, that's going to solve everything for your business. And I think it's much more likely that um, artificial intelligence is going to be an important part of the software development practice. Yeah. All companies make software. We make internal enterprise software that is specifically for decision makers in our companies. We make uh, external software for our customers. And we need to start looking at places in those software systems that we can start putting self-optimizing intelligent features, right? So um, whether it's showing the price on your e-commerce site, the example that we gave before, or whether it's for an internal system, you know, deciding about calendaring or the best um, conference room to put a meeting into. There are all these places that we can start adding. It doesn't have to be genius level, how 2000 intelligent. Right. It can be just a little bit smarter and make people happier, uh, make people more productive and increase the revenue on your systems. Right. And that's the uh, that's the amazing part. Most of us are experimenting with things like with data driven techniques like A-B testing, et cetera, starting to put some intelligent AI behavior behind that is going to be a big next step there. Yeah, and you're you're pointing out an important dynamic for the people tuned in. We're going to get right into our last question here in a second, Evan. But that that dynamic is this notion that AI it doesn't have to be a transition between people are doing it and it's all robots. Uh, I think you know the the more folks learn about the field, they learn about the real trends, the real applications. They start to understand the possibility space, which, by the way, is what we try to make the core value proposition of of this podcast and of of our publication, they, they do come to a, a more understanding that these are tools, these are enhancements and augmentations to tools that exist. Right. These are ways of achieving goals. And, and there will be, you know, a pretty gradual process of IT becoming AI kind of step-by-step step in little ways that are important and drive business value. And it's not, yeah, like you said, it's not a jump to the, the HAL uh, 2000 or whatever the case may be. Yeah. I, I, I guess one way to say it is that AI needs to become more tactical and less about strategic, right? It's not the entire project. It's part of making the project work better. Definitely. Yeah. And I think there there's sort of this current hype phase of what's your AI strategy sort of for, for enterprise. Uh, I'm not a, entirely against it. I think it, it has the chance of being misguided in that we're doing something different than achieving our damn business goals and beating out our competitors right. and feeding our employees. Like, you're still going to do that. You know, like your real strategy is actually that is whatever's going to do that. And then sort of AI is going to, going to help. I think there's, there's a possibility of kind of getting those, those two confused or getting really wrapped up in, uh, sort of the buzzword land. Um, last thing I want to touch on, Evan, just being mindful of time here is what it's going to take for these technologies to become more accessible to more businesses. You know, there's the simple if then logic of, you know, if this happens, then do this. If this happens, then do this. Well, any small business can use, you know, Aweber or Infusionsoft or ActiveCampaign or some marketing automation software that it's like a 
it's an if-then scenario. I mean, it's software, right? Mm-hmm. We don't think about it as intelligence anymore. That's just software. A- anybody can use that. You, you can have you know one employee and one contractor, and you get an AWeber account for nineteen bucks a month and call it a day. Um, <laughs> artificial intelligence, you know, if you want to, if you want to automate some some white collar paperwork job by like transcribing human written characters and things like that, we're very much not at a place where small businesses can kind of hop in. And, and get that done. I think, you know, there's still a lot of wizard skills in machine learning and in AI, and these are not things that are generally accessible to most businesses. What do you see as sort of the the factors that must change for artificial intelligence to kind of do what you had said, to make its way into most IT tools, not, not just at the biggest banks in the world and the biggest pharma companies in yeah. the world, but at, at sort of business in general, you know, small business included, what is it going to take for AI to become a part of IT for everyone? What are the trends that that sort of have to shift to make that happen? Yeah. So I see three big trends there, three big things that are going to need to shift. First of all is going to be um, deployment options, right? So if you're deploying, say, a TensorFlow uh, right now, you know, you have a lot of work in order to set up your cloud system and support that open source uh, product, right? Um, And that's really your only option with TensorFlow. And I think that we have to have different deployment options for different kinds of companies and different kinds of applications. So maybe uh, cloud services like Amazon ML, maybe open source systems, maybe licensed software that runs in process, Maybe it's licensed software that runs as a server on your network, right? But we have to be able to make those decisions that are right for the application and that aren't just right for the technology. Second is, and it's really the most important part of any kind of uh, technology system, is developer experience, right? If developers have a hard time getting started, if the documentation is hard, if, if the system is opaque, you know, that's that's you're dead in the water. You you can only have experts that work with it. We've really tried to make a great developer experience. We uh, we brought on uh, Kevin Fox, who's the uh, original user interface designer for Gmail um, to build our developer environment for Fuzzy AI, because we knew that we wanted to have people be able to come in and quickly build intelligent systems like not take 18 months to build an intelligence system, but be able to get the outline in an afternoon. Yeah, okay, got it, got it. Um, in, in your third one, yeah, go ahead. UX is really the most important. And then third is really a change in mindset, right? It's um, instead of thinking about you know big projects, think about dozens or hundreds of small places to do artificial intelligence. Because that's the only way you get the kind of, institutional expertise and understanding about where it can and can't work for you. So if you're putting up uh, an internal website and you're trying to figure out how to order the menus on your uh, on your interface, use an AI system to make that make that decision, right? If you're trying to decide on a documentation website, what are the best documents to show to an end user? 
use an AI system to make that decision. If we can keep the barrier to entry low, which we're trying to do with fuzzy AI and a lot of other people are doing, then um, software developers should be able to turn to AI as kind of a daily thing and build AI systems as part of their daily business, right? And uh, we're working hard to make the tools available, um, but it is going to also take that change in that software development practice. Yeah, and and it's curious to think about, you know, what will make this part of you know, the daily flow for any business that sort of has a heavy IT investment to sort of ha- have AI be a natural, you know, just think about tactical applications on a regular basis. I think right now it, it seems a little bit dauntingly challenging to use AI for anything other than something huge and gargantuan in, in most companies, you know, um, to, to sort of build yeah. out a system like that for a menu might take so much more time tweaking a process than it would, uh, you know, garnering results that people might steer clear of it, but that won't be the case forever. And my guess is, Evan, that, you know, you guys are seeing the importance of, of user interface, or you're certainly betting your, you know, you're maybe not betting the farm, but you're throwing a lot of investment into paying for really good people to focus on UX. And, you know, maybe hopefully if we're thinking about kind of the, the proliferation of AI at large, that becomes something that people take seriously, that AI companies don't build products and backends and sort of interfaces for wizards, um, but they build mm-hmm. them for people. You know, back in the day before I ever used computers, from what I heard, you know, I watch movies, uh, they, they had a little green, little green symbols and a black screen and people had to type in all kinds of wacky symbols to make <laughs> things happen, right? By the time I was using computers, you know, I'm, I'm a six-year-old, you know, clicking and dragging folders and that worked out pretty well. I think we have not figured out uh, and of course, it's not going to be that simple, but we have not figured out what are the ways to take the core moving parts, the logic parts, the machine learning parts, and make these things that folks who are reasonably educated, maybe not a PhD from Carnegie Mellon, can click, can drag, can move, can deliver some damn results. And clearly, um, this is something that you guys are pushing for. And I really appreciate your perspective on those three big trends. Evan, this has been great to have you on the program. I appreciate you being here on AI and Industry. Dan, thanks a lot. It's been a really great conversation. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications and business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.